Well, Grace family, it is truly a privilege to worship with you today, to open God's word, and to be in his presence with you. I believe that what's happening on the inside finds its way to the outside. What's happening in the interior of your thoughts and in the affections of your heart, we think we have privacy on, we think we can contain them, but it is inevitable what's happening on the inside finds its way to the outside. And oftentimes, what's on the inside isn't pretty. Our thought life or our uh, desires, they can have um, the influence from what the scripture calls our flesh or our self-life. And this morning, I want to pose a choice for you. I believe it is the direction of our devotion that determines the fruit our life produces. And so as we walk through Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, we're going to continuously have a choice presented before us. Are we going to be devoted to a throne or to a cross? Really, to illustrate this, uh, I want you to see this throne that Napoleon sat upon that um, was actually sold in 2019 for $560,000. It must be really comfortable to sit on. Uh, But the reason I want you to have this throne as an image relates to a book that A.W. Tozer wrote. And in Tozer's book, The Radical Cross, Living the Passion of Christ, he writes this. In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding of worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. Listen to these words of Tozer one more time. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of Mansoul, and we wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar. But we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. Which will we choose? A throne? Sovereignty over our own life and entitlements or a cross. You see, just as the gospel is inseparable from the cross, I want you to know that our identity is inseparable from the cross. We are people of a Savior who was called the man of sorrows. We follow one who invited us to take up our cross 
daily in following him. So as we get into what Galatians says, I want to remind you earlier in the book, Paul declares, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for us. The reality is, for the believer, you cannot separate our identity with the cross as opposed to being in charge of our own lives. So I invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to be reading there in chapter 5, starting in verse 22. And what we find starting in verse 19 for context is what Paul tells the church at Galatia are the deeds of the flesh. In fact, he identifies 19 qualities that are very descriptive of what we can manufacture in our own effort. And it is an unpleasant list, Grace family. But I want to contrast that with verses 22 and 23. Starting in verse 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And if we have a choice before us of what we can manufacture in our own life or a surrender of ourselves to what God would produce in us, these nine qualities really are a description of the personality of Jesus. When Paul says he's crucified with Christ and it's Christ who lives in him, what he's demonstrating in that passage is that these nine qualities, the Spirit produces. So I want us to take some time to examine this fruit, these nine qualities. In the Greek, the word for fruit here is karpos. And the only reason I bring up the Greek is because karpos is written in the singular. It's not written in the plural. There's not many fruit. There is one fruit of God's Spirit that is described by these nine qualities. I think this is important as a distinction because sometimes we look at these nine qualities that describe the personality of Jesus and the character of Jesus, and we think, okay, I'm doing okay in two out of the nine, sometimes three, I'm doing really bad in the self-control one, I, I really struggle being gentle, and, um, but you know, I can be patient. No, 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 just put a pause on that kind of evaluation, because the reality isn't, what are you good at out of the nine? There's one singular fruit and when God's Spirit produces it, the package comes as a singular deal and in increasing measure to the extent we yield and empty ourselves before His Spirit. So let's take a little bit of time and unpack these nine qualities, beginning with love. And if we could see these um, qualities, really, some uh, theologians have said the fruit of the Spirit is love, and the other eight are merely descriptors of love. And I think there might be something to that. 
Because the love that tops the list is a love the world cannot manufacture. The agape love of God is unconditional and it doesn't make sense to the world when they see it, but they are drawn to it. My first experience that I can remember of experiencing the Spirit's production of love in me through me for another happened when I was in Bible college. I went to Tacoa Falls College, and um, before going, I, I think it's important for you to know that um, I grew up in a lost home in a suburb of Detroit called Wyandotte. My mom and dad were far from God. My dad was a particularly broken person, and many of his words and actions were ugly and violent. And I heard the gospel first through a little alliance church called Wyandotte Alliance, just two blocks from my house. As a fourth grader, I heard the gospel. I was able to walk to that church every week through middle school, through high school, where I began this transformation of Christ changing my character and my heart. When I graduated from high school, I responded to a call to the ministry that was given at a life conference in Colorado in 1989. I knew God was calling me to the ministry. And so I stepped away from the college I was going to at the time. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it uh, in the state of Ohio, but I went to Michigan. And yeah, I just lost the audience. For those of you at home, I'm sorry. Uh, I transferred. I was on a debate scholarship there at Michigan, but I transferred to Tacoa to begin studying for the work of the ministry. I went there that fall semester, but what I tragically learned is after I left home and went to Bible college, my dad's life began to spiral more rapidly into darkness. He kicked my mother and my little sister out of our home. Uh, he invited another woman into the home. It was ugly and broken. It involved violence and drugs and crime. I was hearing about this from my fall semester at school, but... I was coming home for Christmas break, and it was my resolve to march up to that front door and confront my father. Honestly, in my thoughts, what I could generate were going to be ugly words and ugly actions. But as I walked up the porch of those stairs of that home I grew up in, there was a car I didn't recognize in the driveway. I knocked on the door. My father was reluctant to let me in. I said through the door, Dad, listen, I'm going away uh, to school. I need to see you. My initial thoughts were to confront him. But as I stood in front of that closed door, the Spirit of God got a hold of me. And I began to feel a love for my dad that was transcending his destructive choices and the hurt he was causing my family. I began to feel a love for him I had not felt before and that I could not generate, and I knew it to be God's spirit. And so when he opened the door to me, he was met with a son, not filled with anger and rage, but a son 
filled with compassion. Not a compassion I could generate. What I could generate would be ugly. If I were seated on the throne of my life, the choices I would have made in that moment would be choices I would regret to this day. But God's agape love flowed through me to that man. The other woman was there. She was sitting on the couch and she had covered her head with a blanket so I couldn't see her face. It was very strange. I don't know if there was shame or fear. I don't understand what was going on. I later learned her name was Grace. Such irony. I sat at the dining room table with my dad and shared the words of life that the Spirit gave me to say. He was moved. He was touched. He wept. He faced his brokenness. We ended that conversation. I left. I got in my car and I drove just a few blocks away to the little elementary school uh, to pick up my little sister from the parent pickup line. While I was sitting in the parent pickup line waiting for my little sister to come out, my dad pulled up in his pickup truck. Kind of screeched to a halt, jumped out of his car, marched with some deliberation towards my car. He had a fistful of money in his hand. He marched up to the window and he said to me, Dave, I don't know what they're teaching you at that school, but it sounds like it's the right thing. Here, use some of this money to buy books or something. It would be the last time I would see my dad. I went back to school to study, and on Valentine's Day, while sitting in David Reese's Life of Christ class, furiously taking notes, the Life of Christ class, the dean of men, Virgil Adams, pulled me out of class and said, Dave, I have very bad news for you. Your dad was walking along Interstate 75 between the border of Ohio and Michigan, and he stepped in front of a van and was instantly killed. Grace family, my last words to my dad, if Dave were on the throne, would have been cruel and ugly. But when we set aside self and allow God's spirit to work through us, what he produces, the world cannot imitate, understand, or deny. Love from God's spirit. Joy. I love how G.K. Chesterton addresses the subject of joy in his book, Orthodoxy. G.K. says that those that are far from God have at the center of their lives an angst because the ultimate questions of life remain unanswered. For those far from God, they divert their attention to the peripheries of life, to circumstances, to what's happening in order to seek happiness. But because the ultimate questions of life remain unanswered at the core of their being, there is no joy, there is angst. Here are those questions as some who've studied G.K. Chesterton have articulated it. In fact, these four questions I'm going to share with you are the four questions every world religion is attempting to answer. The first question is, how did we get here? I'm not talking like Pearl Road. I'm talking about how did we, humanity, get here? It's a question of origin. 
Why are we here? It's a question of meaning. What is our purpose in life? Why are we drawing breath and what are we supposed to do with that breath? The third question is a question of ethic. What is right and what is wrong? And who gets to say right from wrong? But the last question is the question that hits hardest and lingers longest. What happens after we die? It's a question of destiny. Origin, meaning, ethic, destiny all left uncertain in the lives of those far from God. But for the follower of Jesus, at our core is a joy knowing that the ultimate questions of life are settled. We know that we were created in the image of a loving God and we are his image bearers. We know that we exist to know him and to make him known throughout all the earth. And so our ultimate purpose is prescribed for us by the one who made us. Grace family, we know right from wrong is derived from the very character and nature of God. As he reveals in his word, we don't have to guess. It isn't a changing rules to the game, but there is certainty of what is right and what is wrong. In fact, if you just think of the Ten Commandments, every commandment protects a principle that tells us something that's true about the person of God. Josh McDowell wrote about this in his book, Right From Wrong. Think about one of the commandments, for example. Thou shalt not commit adultery, to go King James on you. Don't commit adultery. Why? Because there's a value behind that command that is being preserved and protected. It's faithfulness. Why should faithfulness be preserved and protected? Because God is faithful. And every commandment, every precept from God points to a principle that tells us something about the person of God. We as believers no, right from wrong, in an absolute sense. But it's that last question answered for us that is really a source of joy and strength. The scriptures tell us that we follow a Savior who knows his way out of the grave. You want to know what happens when you die? You ask someone who's been there and come back. Aristotle said what the definition of nothing is. Do you want to know what Aristotle said about the definition of nothing? Entertain me. Yeah, sure you do. Thank you. Thank you. Nothing is what rocks think about. What happens when you die? Nothing, because the dead say nothing. That's all the world can figure out. I... Uh, served as a pastor for 25 years in uh, the state of Florida. And so when uh, folks here um, in Ohio and West Virginia ask me about the theme parks, they're assuming that I've been to the theme parks in Orlando uh, because I lived in Florida. And they'd be right, and they were fun. Uh, but if I've never been to those parks, you got no reason to ask me, right? You want to ask someone who's been there and come back. And Jesus Christ has delivered for us as the first 
fruits from among the dead, that there is a life after the grave, that one day death itself will be swallowed up in victory. And even as this family has mourned the loss of a loved one, and as Jonathan declared, his mother is not dead. In fact, she is experiencing fellowship with the resurrection and the life himself. Amen? So for the believer, we have joy because the ultimate questions are settled. And regardless of the circumstances or events that come that rob us of happiness, that can make us sad, and it's okay to be sad, and it's okay to mourn, and those circumstances that take away happiness, uh, they can't stop joy. Because joy is not rooted in what has happened. Joy is rooted in who we know. And who we relate to. And the world can't imitate that. Peace. Peace is that uh, sense of wholeness. It's not merely the absence of conflict, but it's wholeness, completeness. In the Hebrew, it's shalom. In the Greek, it's arene. It means that we are at peace with God. We're, We're united with him. We're complete. We're whole. And in that peace, we can be agents of peace to those in conflict. As those who follow the Prince of Peace, we can be blessed in our effort to be peacemakers. But this kind of peace is not something we can manufacture. There's a peace the world tries to give that's transactional and that's temporal and that is black and red in a ledger. But there is a peace that comes from God that sustains you in the storm. And it's accessed by his spirit when we step off the throne of our lives. Peace. There's not really time for me to go into patience. The clock is ticking. I'm going to just move along. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Patience is the timetable of God being recognized. Patience is the recognition that things we think we're in control of, we're not in control of. Patience is the regard of a person as having more worth than our preferences. In fact, I love how John Ortberg put it in a book he wrote on spiritual disciplines. He said in order to remind himself that God's in control and that he's not, when he's at a grocery store, he deliberately looks for the longest line and gets in that line. Because everything within him... (laughs) And, you know, inevitable Murphy's Law, right? We always pick the wrong line. Oh, they're paying by check. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> the patience the Spirit generates helps you understand that that person that cut you off in traffic, that person is made in God's image and has eternal value. And that you're going to get there when you need to get there. Or maybe not, but it's going to be okay. Because we're not in control, and he is. And when we can submit to his timetable and to his value system, it changes what generates stress for us that really doesn't need to. Kindness. Oh, Grace family. The world could use representatives and sources of kindness wherever you live, work, and play. The tone of 
culture today is so rude and so arrogant. I want you to think about people in retail, people in food service, people in the healthcare system, and the difficulties they're dealing with. Because remember, suffering really exposes what's going on on the inside, and what we can produce on the inside is really not that pleasant for those that are suffering beside us but have to deal with us. But if we could be people of kindness, how refreshing that would be. Grace family, I want you to realize you and I have no idea what that person standing across from us is going through, what they've endured, how close to a precipice they may be. And when they encounter someone who brings a breath of fresh air, who treats them with dignity and kindness, it draws glory to our Savior. It stands in contrast to what this world offers. Goodness. You know, God created this world and declared it good. And we, after he created woman and man, he said, very good. But sin entered the picture and is distorting and corrupting and perverting what God intended as good. And as we surrender to God's spirit, our representatives of his goodness, we show in a world obsessed with evil that evil's days are numbered. That there will come a time when evil will get its just deserves. And until that time, the way we represent the goodness of God as aspects of his creation, filled with his spirit, gives credibility to our witness, gives hope to those who are overwhelmed by the evils that overtake. Gentleness, I love that image of that muscle-bound man cradling in his powerful palms, gently, a newborn baby. It's power under constraint. We could attack that person on social media for the ignorant things they say, but instead, when we see them, we speak words of love to them and patience for them. And, and we're gentle with the facts we have or the perspective we have that contrasts. When we're in conflict with a family member, we could really let them have it for all the mistakes of all the legacy of all the years we've known. But gentleness treats people with value. Self-control. Uh, Self-control. I uh, was in Detroit yesterday for uh, a, a, a funeral in our world and uh, uh, when all was done, I asked my wife if we could stop at my favorite pizza place. And Susan's thinking, how much damage are you going to do to that pizza? And how much damage are you going to let it do to you? Self-control doesn't come naturally, Grace family. Whatever the appetite might be. But when God's spirit manifests the personality of Jesus, in contrast to our desires, there is a moderating and a self-governing that this world is not familiar with and that points to our Savior. So the fruit's pretty good, but how do we access it? Look, if you would, at Galatians chapter 5, verses 
24 and 25. Now those who belong to Christ, that's who we are. Those who belong to Christ have been, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Who we are are those who belong to Christ. And what those who belong to Christ do is crucify the flesh. This is how we walk by the Spirit. You see, we got to stay in our lane. We uh, miss where our authority and ability lies. And I've watched Christian after Christian try to manufacture resurrection life through their behavior and their efforts and their willpower. And, and that's not our lane. We, we can't bring back from the dead. We can't produce the work of God's spirit. It's outside of our jurisdiction. But here's the lane we do run in. We have authority to set aside the self-life. We have authority to crucify our own entitlements and our own passions because we don't live for ourselves. We live for the one who purchased us with his blood. I love how Rob Raymer talks about the self-life in his book, Spiritual Authority. Rob um, picks on Moses. Just think about Moses for a minute. Moses experienced a lot of shame in his life. In fact, uh, he was given away by his parents, though their effort was noble and to save his life. He was drawn out of the water. That's where he gets his namesake, Moses. Drawn out of the Nile by Egyptian royalty. And just a bit of history, the Egyptians viewed the Hebrews as far inferior to them. So much so that they would not even eat with them. And yet Moses was raised not only by Egyptians, but by Egyptian royalty. And so throughout his life, he was less than. And then you see, as Moses tries to stick up for his family in an act of lack of self-control and rage, he murders an Egyptian and experiences not only the rejection from his people, but the rejection from the royal family. He has to flee in shame. He's wandering the desert and he sees a bush lit aflame. I love how Tony Evans talks about this bush. When God is the fire, any bush will do. And as Moses approached this bush and noted that it was not consumed, though lit aflame, he was curious until the bush identified as a manifestation of God's presence. And then Exodus 3 tells us that Moses hid his face from God. The posture of shame is eyes on self. And Moses began with his eyes on himself. An occupation with self. When God gave him his mission, Moses replied, Who am I that I would set the people free? God gave him a mission, and instead, Moses kept his eyes on himself, and he answered the wrong, he, he gave the wrong question, who am I? But God gave the right answer, I will go with you, Moses. And this began a journey of God lifting Moses' eyes off himself, off of his um, poor speech, off of his lack of ability. God began to lift Moses' eyes off himself and put his sights on the Lord. So much so that as Moses' shame and rejection began to be dealt with, 
by a pursuit of God's face. Moses was no longer hiding his face from God. But in one occasion of conflict with his family, God steps down on earth to confront them and defend Moses. And he says, with other prophets, I speak in in dreams and in visions. But with Moses, I speak how? Face to face. See, the self-life that we need to crucify are those defenses that we build to protect us from the hurts that we felt throughout life, whether it's bravado and self-confidence or insecurity or self-obsession. Let's make it personal, Grace family. What is the fruit of your life? If you thought of your life like a pinata and when hard things come, what falls out? Is it the deeds of the flesh or is it the fruit of the spirit? And are you willing to lay aside and surrender to the Lord those things that he's calling you to surrender? We started with Tozer. I'd like to end with Tozer. This is from his book, uh, The Pursuit of God. Self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. It can be removed only in spiritual experience, never by mere instruction. We may as well try to instruct leprosy out of our system. There must be a work of God in deconstruction before we are free. We must invite the cross to do the deadly work within us. We must bring our self-sins to the cross for judgment. We must prepare ourselves for an ordeal of suffering in some measure like that through which our Savior passed when he suffered under Pontius Pilate as the worship team comes. You have a choice. Is it going to be your throne and the tinsel crown? Or is it going to be the cross and the fruit of God's spirit? Let's pray. Father in heaven, by your spirit, speak to us. Speak to us about those areas of our lives you've called us to surrender. Lift our eyes off of ourselves. Place our eyes on your grace and the fruit of your spirit. May it it shine forth like a beacon from our lives as we surrender to you that a world without hope would see your love incarnated through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.